and welcome to Calamity, a podcast about natural and not-so-natural disasters. In each episode, we examine a catastrophic event from world history. We are your hosts, the Coolman Sisters. I'm Jema. I'm Jillian. And I'm Caitlin. And today I am going to be leading the podcast. Yay! Yeah. (laughs) We are both excited and scared, all of us. Um, this is the second time that we've attempted this. It went pretty well the first time. We wanted to give Jillian a rest from all the hard work that she does. Um, every single week she researches a new disaster to cover, and she, she teaches Jama and I about it. So um, this time around, I signed up to do a disaster, and um, we're going to be talking about the city of Boston today. Um, so the, the name of the disaster is the Great Molasses flood i can yay yeah i i just the the name itself is literally what drew me to want to learn more about this um however i also learned it has many other names uh so the great molasses flood is what it's known most as it's also called the boston molasses disaster or the great boston molasses flood and sometimes uh, referred locally as the boston uh, molasses massacre. Oh goodness, massacre. Yeah, that's a strong word. It is. <laughs> is it like weaponized molasses? That's what we're talking about. You're gonna find out. Okay. Uh, well, so I'm ready. Let's go back to our childhood days, sisters. Um, what do you guys know about molasses? Makes really good cookies. Grandma has a great molasses cookie recipe. I thought you'd say that. Soft and chewy. They were like the only cookies you could depend on would be soft and chewy. Whereas, well, no, they'd eventually get a little crunchy. But it seemed like the chocolate chip ones, more often than not, were crunchy. I liked making molasses cookies with Grandma because I could uh, eat molasses right out of the jar. I would dip my finger in and then lick it off. (laughs) <laughs> so unsanitary. I'm sure I doubled it. I remember, I remember liking the flavor of molasses. I mean, it was fine once it was in a cookie mixed with all the sugar, but yeah, it's a strong flavor. And is well, it uh, like boiled down brown sugar or something like that? I think that it is. I didn't research that part of it. I know that it comes from. Um, uh, we're going to talk about how it, it comes up from, uh, in this case, Cuba um, or um, like the uh, Caribbean area uh, from sugarcane. So uh, I don't, I, I get that's a really easy elementary question, Jillian. I really should have known, but I was so into the actual events of the day, I did not actually research what it's made out of. So. Okay, it's sugar related. Yes, 100%. Yeah, it's obtained from the raw sugar during the refining process. Perfect. I'm happy I can count on Jama. <laughs> sugar cane or from sugar beet. Okay. Um, well, we're going to learn a lot about the different attributes of molasses today. Uh, <laughs> its uh, stickiness, its sweetness, uh, its smell, and all that good stuff. So yep. uh, I'm going to start off just by setting the scene so we all know where the happened and some of the factors leading into it. 
Um, there's a neighborhood in the city of Boston called the North End. And at the time in 1919, uh, a company called the Purity Distilling Company built a huge steel storage tank to house molasses. So what happens okay. is, uh, this is a, the North End, I should say, is actually right on the harbor. Uh, ships can come in and dock. So there's a, it's a very, very densely populated area. A lot of uh, immigrants who are kind of blue collar workers. So you can also imagine a lot of um, industrial buildings. It's a little bit of a mash, like the people who are living um, and working in the, the industrial jobs. And then in addition to that, the um, buildings themselves where people are going to work. And um, so, again, really densely populated. I believe there's about um, 40,000 people per one square mile at, at that time were there. And uh, the address, by the way, um, not that that matters too much, but in case you really want to get down into the details, um, the storage tank address was 529 Commercial Street near Keeney Square. And uh, the, the dimensions, what's that? That's thorough. That's real thorough to give us the address of this. We good that new to this, Jillian. I'm like, well, which which facts do I include? Which facts do I not include? So, <laughs> um, so the the dimensions of the structure was 50 feet high, which is actually um, in comparison to the, a lot of the other structures nearby, it was higher. I mean, I'm not saying it's like the tallest building in the city. It's not, but it was just higher than a lot of the buildings nearby. So 50 feet high by 90 feet in diameter. Um, and like I said, that sounds like yeah. Um, is it is it up off the ground or is, it yeah. does sit on the ground? It, yeah, yes. off the ground. This is not going to help our listeners, but um, if you think the farm, the old round grain bins, the corrugated metal round structure, so it's that but bigger. Um, that's a it, that's roughly what what it looks like. Um, so not like a water tower. No. Like a water tank. Yes. Okay. So we're going to talk about the construction of this um, structure. It was built in 1915. Uh, this was built because uh, two reasons. Molasses, I'm sure, can be used in all kinds of things, but there was a, a great demand to distill molasses into alcohol. For drinking consumption, and because this is huh. World War One, there was also uh, a way for you to um, distill molasses into um, a, a liquid that you can then use for munitions for weapons. Um, that really? was really how. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. How how is that process? <laughs> Surely you researched that a little bit, right? I did. I did. Um, I'm looking over my notes to try and find it. Um, so the stuff we make cookies of is also a weapon of mass destruction. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, like a couple of the sources, like bombs and not bullets, I don't think, but um, like it, it lists three three different things that you can use it as. Um, 
I'm reading, sorry, one moment. Yeah, Wikipedia right. says, uh, as a minor component for mortar for brickwork, that makes sense because it's sticky. Oh, true, yeah. Yeah, but I think there's got to be better stuff than gingerbread material to make a house with. <laughs> I don't know. So that leads me to the next thing. But this time, welding wasn't even a thing. So the, there was no welding. Um, you just have to remember, weapons were different back then. You just used what you had. I don't know. Um, but, so <laughs> they used to bake the weapons, Jim. I, I don't understand how this works. Well, Jamie, you you research that a little bit more because I I, know I am researching it. I don't. It's used for jerky. It's used for you know yeah. barbecue sauce, stouts and porters, vinaigrette, molasses. It even looks for non-edible or non-food related. Yeah, I mean it says industrial. It, besides mortar for brickwork, it's mixed with gelatin glue and glycerin. Well, it's probably when casting composition ink rollers for early printing press. press. World War One, then, because we're, we certainly don't use molasses for munitions anymore. So this is a past tense situation. Anyway, I'm going to move on to talking about more about the structure. That's actually more important to the story. <laughs> so because there's no welding at that time, the way to get a structure this large made out of steel is um, to uh, you know, you've got your big pieces of steel that are, are made up, um, is what you're making the walls out of. You're going to punch a whole bunch of holes in the ends of each steel piece. And then you're going to use rivets and another, what they call lap joint, to go um, to, to essentially connect the two pieces together and then um, rivet it all together. Uh, I feel like I just did a horrible job of explaining how that works, but um, it's essentially connecting. I'm picturing it. I, I okay, think I good. get it. So there's, there's uh, yeah, lines of rivets or whatever those are called where yeah. it's like bolted together. Yes. Bolted together is a good okay. way of saying it. Yeah. Um, and then let's see. Uh, the reason why this storage tank was where it was. Uh, proximity to the harbor, so it's very easy for offloading from ships. And then it was used uh, as a short-term temporary storage um, container that then they would uh, later transfer by pipeline to the purity ethanol plant situated between Willow Street and some other street. Um, I, I was taking that. There was a molasses pipeline? Yes, there's a molasses pipeline. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the big picture. Is like, why is it there? What was it used for? You know, and and all and all, all that. Were there stuff. protesters on this pipeline? No, <laughs> we're not. Was it run directly through Indian land? <laughs> uh, there, there were not protesters, and I'm I'm going to circle back to that about the very end of the call. Um, oh. So. Uh, <laughs> If I remember, actually. Um, so two things have occurred. Um, one, well, one we know that World War One ended on November 11th, 1918. So the need for munitions went down. So this company had previously been 
hired by the government um, as a contractor to supply these these products for munitions. Now all of a sudden they're they're not needing as much, so they they have a surplus. And then um, in addition, uh, several sources cited the fact that at this time, because the prohibition was about to be enacted, it was actually just a day or two later. Um, for, and I don't understand really the logistics about this, but uh, the company um, had uh, an increased number, uh, uh, increased level of product on hand in preparation. They had a surplus. Yeah. And they had more than they could. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So this tank was designed to hold 2.3 million gallons of liquid. And on January, That's a lot of gallons. What's that? It's a lot of gallons. Yeah, it really is. January 14, 1919, a small tanker from Cuba docked in the harbor and offloaded a load. At the end of that offload, the number, or the amount of gallons that that tank held was two million. 319,525 gallons. So over the maximum amount. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Something a problem in the making. Exactly, yes. So um, the disaster itself happened on January 15th, 1919. And Temperature had a lot to do with this. I know right now in uh, Washington state, temperatures are dropping. Um, you can imagine this is the middle of January in uh, Boston. So very, very cold, uh, very frigid. Um, in fact, around, you know, the, I believe it was the 13th, 12th of January, the temperatures had been down to the two degrees in Boston. And they had right. what's called really cool. Jan- Sorry, go ahead. I was saying that's really cold. Oh gosh, yeah, it's really cold. And the crazy thing is, they had a January thaw, um, which is in quotations. Apparently, it's a thing um, <laughs> where uh, temperatures rose over 40 degrees in just a couple okay. days. So, wow! So this has a lot to do with the disaster. Um, that being said, I'm going to finish out kind of setting the scene. Uh, as I mentioned before, a very congested area, a lot of people around. Um, I don't know what day of the week this was, but it was a work day. Um, people were going to work or they were at work and they were taking their lunch break. So this is during the noon hour. It happened right around 1230. Um, temperatures have been rising steadily all morning long. Um, it was around 40, 45 degrees. Uh, at, at that time of the day. Um, and uh, the other thing that one of the, my sources pointed out is um, the Red Sox had won the World Series uh, the previous fall. Um, I want to say that's September um, 1918. So the Red Sox won the World Series. The war is over, and it's a really gorgeous day outside. Like people are super happy, they're outside, they're doing their chores in, in the sunshine, you know, uh, it's, if you can kind of just imagine the vibe of the neighborhood. So, um, let's see, what happens inside the tank, 
when it's overfilled and when the temperature changes so drastically. Um, mm -hmm. If you guys can go back in your memories, like think about a molasses as you're, you're at grandma's house. If it's cold, it's going to move really slowly and be kind of thick. And if it's, if it's um, warm, it's got, it just reacts different. It's more viscous, right? Moves around Definitely. a bit. So one of the issues with this, A, the structure was built poorly, and we'll get to that later on. Um, but B, if this were spring, summer, fall, there would be vents that would be open uh, near the top of the structure to allow airflow in and out. Um, because though it was winter, those were, uh, you know, bat I want to say battened down. That's a, a word, right? They were closed. Yeah. So all of this molasses that's inside the tank is heating and wanting to expand, and there's nowhere for it to go. Um, I want to mention yeah. too. Only one source mentioned this, and they didn't go into it, so I have questions about it. But uh, one source I thought was very interesting mentioned that in order to get the molasses off of the ship the day before and into the container, they warmed it up so that it was more viscous, so that it would flow faster, just make an easier, um, you know, offloading process. That makes, that makes sense. sense, actually. Yeah. It makes total sense. I don't know how you'd heat it up on a ship. Um, with a fire or something, but so, I mean, it, it was kind of said just sort of as like um, in passing almost, and I was like, well, how's the, how's the science behind that? How does a ship, how do you use it anyway? But it does make sense that you would do that. So um, that particular source had said not only with the added heat of the day, but also the fact that some of this new molasses was kind of superheated um, when it was added in, it just um, exacerbated the whole thing. So, um, what do you guys think happened? I mean, I'm going to get to it, obviously, but uh, uh, it's it's um, based on what you know about science. Um, and, well, and it is happens. used. It is used in alcohol, and apparently. Uh, apparently, ammunition as well. So it must have some bit of Combustibility? Is that a word? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say yes. You think it um, touches fire? No, well, no, you're right. Not not fire, but... Sam is right. It was, um, it did literally explode out of the tank. Um, and thankfully, it did not catch fire. Oh my gosh, that would have been um, insane. But... Uh, so it was just a pressure thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a ignited explosion it was just a built pressure 100 percent kind yes. of thing you got it so yeah. interestingly enough the first couple of sounds people heard sounded like machine guns because if you can think about those rivets and you know kind of like screws they're, they're not screws mm -hmm. they're rivets but um you know yeah. jammed in all over the structure keeping all the various different plates of steel held together and they all that, just yeah floated out like, pop, pop, pop. and I, I'm actually I can't make machine gun noises so uh, I should apologize <laughs> for what I to do. Um and so, yeah go ahead they initially thought it was like gunfire right there in town. 
Yeah, but the accompanying sound of explosion, it was kind of all at the same moment. Um, it sounded like gunfire, but also was an explosion, kind of in the same instance. Um, uh, yeah, so explosion of metal just crashing everywhere. So the, the steel plates that had been holding this container together literally went out in all directions and hit everything around it. Um, and the, you know, as this, the structure was 50 feet high. And so it's just everything that was all the molasses held inside and is now rushing out. So the sound of this weird, I don't know, gooey substance in a wave of uh, of really viscous liquid. Um, you know, it's, it's not real slow at this point. Like it's, in fact, it reaches a, a peak speed uh, traveling down the street of 35 miles per hour. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, one of the sources that I um, went to get information about this did a fantastic job. I'm going to cite them at the, the end of our show. Um, they had a lot of... Um, specific stories from actual individuals. Uh, so definitely want to give them credit, but I'm going to be talking a lot about the couple of different people um, that they followed throughout the day, um, how they were affected initially, and then what happened to them at the end. So um, the first person we're going to talk about is a policeman. He was on his daily beat just walking around police off. You know, you, you greet people, you say hello and all this stuff. Um, because it was about the noon hour, uh, it was time for him to check in with his station. And at the time, there's no cell phones, obviously. Um, there are call boxes that are placed around um, specifically for the, the officers to call in up to their station. So he had the phone up to his ear and was had already started his conversation when the explosion happened behind him. And he could hear this loud noise, and he looked around, and he could see the wave rushing. And uh, one of the sources says he had the presence of mind to be able to say, like, send help immediately, and then just ran because he had, like, he had to outrun it. And so he ran straight down the street and then cut into a side street, and that was like kind of his saving grace. He was able to avoid the, the <laughs> main brunt of the of the wave. Um, and I suspect that he ran as, as fast as he could to the next call box <laughs> until he could get relay more information. So we'll talk about that later. The, um, the response effort to this is actually really good. So, um, yep, so he ran for his life. Uh, the next group of guys I'm gonna talk about is a firehouse that was uh, situated very close to the, um, the storage tank. The firehouse where four firemen were playing cards around a table and one of them okay. was, well, I mean, you know, they're waiting for a call, right? So waiting yeah, for emergency. I like it. And unfortunately, what game were they playing, Caitlin? I don't know. Joker, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, so unfortunately, instead of waiting for a call to come, uh, the emergency, in fact, uh, was threatening their own lives. Um, one of the men was facing a window that was giving him a view of this wave. Obviously, they all heard the explosion. They all looked up, and he had a, the most direct view to see what was coming at them. He stood up, he turned around, and he dove out a window. Like, that was just immediately, there was no hesitation. The other three guys uh, didn't have 
a good vantage point, and I'm sure it was a millisecond uh, difference, but uh, the other three men could not, did not get out of the, uh, out of the building in time. Uh, so the waves hit the building and picked it up off of its um, uh, structure, off of its foundations, and was moving it. Oh, my it gosh. I know, and kind of crumpling it all at the same time. So these men are in a moving building, but it's also, you know, falling down around them. Um, and so I cannot quite there. imagine this. That's so insane. Yeah. I know. A I mean, wave I of molasses. We talk about it in, in flooding all the time, right? Like we've got a couple stories where there's been a flood or a dam burst or something where, yeah, the pressure of the water going downhill is enough to move a house. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think mm-hmm. that the molasses would do that. Yeah, I can't quite. With with enough pressure and with enough of it, um, you know, there's... Yeah. So, um, so sticky. You think it would just stick to stuff before it could get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it must be more liquidy than we're imagining, Jama. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next couple of people we'll talk about. There's a, a two siblings, um, boy and girl. They were walking home uh, to their their house. Um, they're very near the house, and uh, the explosion happened. They looked back. They could see this wave rushing at them. They started running. And the boy lives to tell a story, so he had been interviewed after the fact. Um, he recalls being, felt like being tackled from behind, like, you know, from a football player. He landed with such force that he, he lost two front teeth. Um, but thankfully, he landed near the base of a light pole. And so he was able to grab hold of the light pole. Um, and as you can imagine, the wave is kind of... Um, it's rising as it's coming, you know, like it had knocked him down and, and more was coming behind it. And so he's, you know, at the base of this pole and he's sort of trying to climb himself up as the wave gets higher and higher. Um, however, because he'd been knocked down, like he's completely drenched in molasses from head to toe. Um, and he's running and so his mouth is open. It got him inside of his mouth. Like he can't, he's having trouble breathing. And in fact, he can't yell. Um, he's close enough to his house that he can see his mom. Uh, she's leaning out the third floor window of their apartment or, uh, yeah, um, I was going to say house, but I'm pretty sure it's all apartments in that area. Um, she, in her retelling of the story, she recalls seeing a boy that was holding onto a light post, but he's so covered in molasses, she didn't recognize him as her own. Um, so he, he was trying to scream out to her and, like, apparently was trying to use his hand to get molasses out of his mouth, but he couldn't. Um, he eventually did lose consciousness from struggling so much and then the the inability to breathe correctly. Um, but we'll come back to him later. Um, and the last one is a, a middleweight boxer. He was well-known in the neighborhood because he, you know, was a great athlete, and um, he was uh, sleeping in the third floor of his, um, sorry, uh, his house's apartment. Sorry, no, his family's apartment. Um, his mom was taking advantage of the beautiful weather and she was doing some chores outside and he had two siblings downstairs. And so he woke up from his nap 
because he felt a pressure on his chest. And when he sat up and he looked around, it, like it, he had this, it felt like um, he was lost at sea, like that, that um, like he's being thrown overboard and like he's, he's on a raft somewhere, just kind of, you know, wobbling in the water. That was like the sense. You must think you're felt. still dreaming. I mean, I know. to wake up like that. Yeah. It's not real. You just would not, I don't think your brain would compute, like, what is happening. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. it doesn't, you know, it's not water. It's this weird brown liquid that's so weird. Yeah. So going back to kind of some numbers, uh, again, I mentioned before, it had radiated out from its base at a speed of 35 miles per hour. Um, it had a eight-foot-high wave. And oh, my God. It had that would be terrifying. Yeah. And struck the firehouse at two. Wait, wait, wait! I'm seeing it's 25 feet high at its peak, eight meters high. Oh, okay. You know, I wrote that down. 25 though. feet. Oh my God. And also, you have to remember That's... that this is a, a central place that's been radiating out, so it's it's most explosive, you know, right at the cent right at the center. But it does kind of level out to, um, you know, the further you get out. Um, right. Maybe it leveled out to an eight-foot wave or something. I don't know. But I can't even well, yeah. comprehend this, but the firehouse was hit at two tons per square foot. Huh. Two tons per square foot. Which okay. makes sense why it picked it up off of its foundation and just moved. Yeah. Yep. All right. So next we're going to look at our um, rescue efforts. How How big was... Um, the diameter, like yeah, um, how many like blocks, city blocks? Is that yeah? Like, like did it get all the way down to the harbor? It was situated right next to the harbor, so it 100% went in the harbor. on the water. Yeah, yeah, and that, that that was it. Did not have very far to travel at all. Um, and I think that it there are maps around, but I didn't I didn't have a good way of seeing the um you know, the, the diameter in uh, measurements, but it, it's not miles. It's, it's, it, you would measure it in a matter of blocks. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? But it's such a yeah, congested, so, such a congested yeah. area that even though it's a few blocks, it's still, um, I mean, not just a, a few blocks. Um, it, anyway, I don't know the answer yeah. to that. Maybe Jamie can find it. Um, it, it's kind of saying it's just a sort of several blocks were flooded to a depth of two to three feet. So like waist deep. Sounds like there was a lot of animals too. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. Yeah. Wow. So the, the rescue efforts started. Can you imagine? Hold on. Can you yeah. imagine being swept off your feet in molasses and then like trying to stand up? Like it would have. Oh, you like no. being in water. <laughs> that's insane. So hard. Exactly. It says it's 40% more dead than water. So, like, yeah, that would just be know. so hard to push back Perfect. against. It doesn't, it doesn't run off of you like water does. So Right, right. That's, that's just crazy. Do you know how many people were went, went for a swim that day, Caitlin? I do, I do. Um, and, in fact, you guys are really setting me up perfectly for everything I had prepared. So... <laughs> I'm just going to kind of keep going down my, my list in order uh, so I don't get jumbled up too much. But um, so uh, 
you know, there were phones at this time, and so news did travel quickly, and a lot of people did come to help uh, within the first hour to, you know, four hours. They, they did have a lot of people who were um, either volunteering or uh, part of an organization. So we had the Boston Police, the Red Cross, the Army, and the Navy. They all showed up to, have, to, to pitch in. Um, also, uh, this was, the, we had just gone through the war, so people were fairly well trained in emergency disaster and in um, medical, you know, me medical emergencies. So oh, that's they, right. um, I'm not sure if this was right off the bat, if it was like the first hour, I'm probably not. But within the first day, they had a health station set up in a, a safe distance away in a place called Haymarket Square. Um, and uh, so you know, you've got nurses there and doctors ready to, to help the people coming in. And then you've got another wave of people going into the molasses site trying to bring people out. But exactly as you guys mentioned, um, and, and this is maybe the thing, it's both surprising and not surprising. When you think of molasses, it's brown, it's thick, and it covers everything. So if you can imagine just a landscape covered in molasses, you can't tell. How do you even find someone? Exactly. It's like there's a building. And then there's a, you know, some clothes, and there's a, a, a automobile or whatever, or a horse, or the, you know, like everything is just the same color and the same sheen. You can't tell the difference between objects. And yeah. so, people were looking for someone who might be struggling. So maybe somebody's pinned under something, but they've got a, a limb free that's like waving around, struggling. We already mentioned how molasses can get in your mouth and it makes it hard to voice yourself so you have people who do need help but can't scream um i'm sure some people were able to but you know just having to fight that problem um and uh the other horrible factor in this is that uh as the afternoon went on so this happened at 12:30. you can imagine the sun starts to set fairly early in the winter time and uh, the temperature soon began to drop, and unfortunately, then the molasses became more thick. Um, so oh, goodness. You're right. Oh, man. It would have been hard. So that 40-degree 40, 40 weather, it just shot up, and then it shot back down again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. So it's the perfect storm, like we always say. <laughs> yeah. We needed yeah. all these things to go wrong for this to happen. Yeah. Um. So it was harder to struggle against um, people who might have been pinned under something. Um, it, it, they, they do, they kind of talk a little bit, like it kind of feels like quicksand. The more you struggle against it, just the more stuck you become and you exhaust yourself and then you kind of give up because you, it's, it's traumatic, you're freaked out, like your, your brain is going crazy, but, you know, you've been, after several hours of this, you've been in this fight or flight um, a moment for, for so long that your body just starts to, to just um, give up. I don't even quite understand, how, as a rescue worker, how you would be like, okay, I made it to the last of the fight someone. Um, without becoming a victim of it yourself. Right, yeah. You have to be very careful, and I think that, that because of that, uh, they, they didn't stop searching until four days had passed. Um, and that might speak to just the difficulty that they did have in reaching, in actually navigating in. 
you know, the funny, not funny, sorry, the wrong word. I was thinking about Hurricane Katrina when this happened and different flooding, you know, floods that we've known in, in the South where you see these iconic pictures of a man, usually a man kind of like with a, a rope over his shoulder and he's he's got attached to a raft and he's pulling many people out to safety. But in this case, you, uh-huh. you can't raft a molasses. You just, right. you, you had to get in there. You had to get sick of yourself. You had to, you know, this heavy, this heavy person, you know, extra heavy because of all the extra weight. Um, so it was very, very. Oh my gosh. And there, there were a lot of. <laughs> the logistics like, of this are just baffling me. What's that? It's the logistics of this are just mm-hmm. baffling me. That's just yeah. crazy. <laughs> so they, they did a really good job. For the rescue workers did a fantastic job, but they were just up against so much. Um, the the issue about there two being to a three lot feet, two to three feet of molasses. That yeah, that's up to your waist. I don't even know how you'd even wade into that, and and I don't know how you would clean up. How do you get three feet yeah, of molasses out of your city? Because <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? Especially once it gets cold and it's freezing. Mm-hmm. You're gonna just chip it away. It stayed. The harbor stayed brown all the way until summer, um, which is not surprising to me at all. Um, and unfortunately, a few of the victims were not found because they had been swept out into the harbor. Um, and it was winter, and so you know, you just your ability to access the harbor was less. Um, so they weren't found for three or four months later. And there, so. I'll get to the numbers now. Um, I'm going to jump around just a little bit, but there were uh, 21 deaths in this disaster um, and 150 injuries. Uh, so of the 21, um, I don't know exactly how many were found in the harbor, but, you know, thankfully, like, I don't know, I, 21 is, is not a good number, but yet it's, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think that very many were swept out into the harbor. But the fact that like they they couldn't be retrieved for for months just because of the weather is just crazy. So, um, and then going back to your comment, Jillian, about uh, the animals, there were a lot of horses in that area, um, and I believe, I believe, just dogs and cats as well. Just um, it being a city environment. So, um, the rescue it's workers. A city, so to- probably rats. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah, lots of rats. So, so. No one misses them. The rescue workers were looking for sizable mounds that were thrashing, and then you know you'd see some movement, but you it would you know you'd go try and see it. Oh, it's not a human; it's a it's an animal. Um, and, you know, and unfortunately they had to put a lot of the animals down. So, very difficult rescue. But I want to say that the rescuers did a fantastic job. Um, they did use, make use of a um, fire department pumper fireboat. So this is a um, boat oh, that sure. floats out Free in the water harbor. From the harbor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and it was able to pump salt water from the harbor into the... Um, like back onto land and uh-huh. was able to kind of break up the molasses to a certain extent, which was, which was kind of a ingenious idea. Um, it just essentially just like dissipate it some more. Is that dissolve, not dissolve. Um, what's the word? Dilute. 
diluted a little bit more. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and yeah, then also, crazy. anybody with a shovel um, would show up and uh, just literally try and shovel out molasses, if you yeah, can imagine like into that. piles? I guess. I don't know that part. Just wait for it to run off somewhere. Um, and then specifically because of that, uh, the people, and, and you can imagine, even say, say you've got a business, like a little cafe, covered in, in um, molasses, you've shoveled it out, and then you've swept it out, and then you've mopped it out, and then you've mopped it out again, and then you've mopped it out again. You're still going to have stuff sticky in your cafe. like Absolutely. You know, Sticky to the touch, you're going to sit down, there's the seat's going to be a little sticky. So they talk about this for months on end. You know, you get on a bus or you pick up a phone or, you know, people are tracking us into their houses and then into their businesses and you just can't get away from it. It was just a sticky neighborhood for months. I mean, well, and it's all over the city oh because God. you've got, you know, people taking public transportation and they're mm -hmm. using these pay phones all over. And <laughs> I mean, it's just going to spread out all over the city. It's, I mean, obviously the like worst of it is right there where the explosion was, but they're just tracking this everywhere. Yep. Yep. Well, and wouldn't it like, wouldn't it make that whole area smell a little bit? Yes. In fact, you can't wash um, it all away. There was, I don't think that it I don't think that it's so much a real thing anymore. It's more just kind of folklore. Um, but certainly for several decades after this, anytime there was an extremely hot summer day, you could smell molasses. Um, everybody <laughs> who lived there. And it, it's kind of one of those things where it became so ingrained in the culture. Like I'm sure at some point you're like, I don't really smell molasses, but like we all say that, yeah, it smells like molasses. But <laughs> For sure, that was a real thing for a very long time. It wasn't just months at that point. It smelled like molasses for years, you know, if the, if the temperature rose. So um, I want to go back. We talked about kind of the overview of the relief effort. So I'm going to dive back down into those couple of stories. Um, mm -hmm. So of the three um, trapped firemen, uh, they had been pinned against some of the, the debris inside the building pretty badly. And it took the rescue workers several hours to get to them. And one of the gentlemen, unfortunately, was trapped underneath a pool table. I don't know his position. Um, but he firefighters had, had a lot of entertainment options. I was going to say that too, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the, the, I don't I don't know how it really was inside this building. They mentioned how it was like they had just a few inches of air to breathe in there. And this particular yeah. man had been fighting, struggling against this pool table for hours. And wow. he eventually sort of, he drowned from exhaustion. Um, he couldn't oh. bite and tread. You know, he was, he was having to kind of tread the molasses to stay up and keep his head above, mm -hmm. above it. And, and after several hours of that, he was, he was just physically exhausted. So he unfortunately did not make it. And then the other two... What a terrible and yet unique way to die. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Probably the only person in the history of the world who has died <laughs> in that particular manner. Yeah. Um, so the other two firemen, thankfully, were rescued. Um, people were able to, you know, break into the, the building um, and, and get them out of what they were trapped inside. 
Um, so they they survived. The boy on the light pole, as I mentioned, he lost consciousness. Um, he did regain consciousness again while he was being thrown into a cart with three other dead bodies in it. So what had happened is the wave came, it rose, he climbed up, you know, was climbing up this la- uh, lamp post. Uh, the, the, the wave was still rushing by him. Um, eventually the wave uh, decreases, it goes back down, he loses consciousness, he's probably just left laying on the ground. And rescue workers are coming through, they're trying, you know, working as hard as they can, they find this boy, he's not responding, they've already got a cart full of dead bodies, they throw him in there. He remembers being thrown in there. (laughs) He lost consciousness again. Um, He wakes up uh, laying down with a white sheet over his over his face. He had been uh, assumed dead, and he, you know how dead bodies have white sheets over, like they, he was left for dead. They thought he had died, and uh, his mother and his two sisters happened to be at the, the makeshift morgue um, at that very time, so he, I don't know exactly how the reunion went, but he woke up, he realized the sheet was over him, he pulled it off, um, he did need stitches, which apparently he got right there. I mean, he was able to go home with his mom and sisters who were who were there. So it was just, oh gosh, amazing that he <laughs> that he made it. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, that the middleweight crazy. boxer. Um, he was able to get his bearings. Uh, his apartment building had just been completely obliterated. Like walls did not exist anymore. Uh, like none of it remained. And he. Yeah, that's why he kind of felt like he was swimming. Like his bed was just adrift um, on this wave of, of molasses. So he managed to kind of make a, a makeshift raft out of some debris. Um, he found his siblings and scooped them up onto the raft, and they survived. Um, his mom, who had been outside at the time, uh, she did not survive. She um, had been crushed by some debris. Yeah. So again, we've got uh, 21 people who died and 150 who had been injured. Um, yeah, and I had kind of concluded that section just to say for months, everything was sticky. Um, no getting around that. So um, the last... Wait, that, what? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, never mind. I was going to say what happened to the the guy in the phone box, but now I remember he was he called in and, yeah, and ran out of the way. Sir, yeah. Uh, he survived right away. You know, he had done that that sprint to get to the next um, call box, right. and, and he was literally able to outrun it, which is he must have been in quite good shape. <laughs> um, so the last section we're going to look at uh, to kind of uh, separated out um, certain categories of information is the aftermath of the event um, from more of a political standpoint, from more of a you know business minded way of think of uh, looking at it. There was a lot of pointing fingers right off the bat um, because purity distilling would not take any blame for it. They said it was not our fault at all. This had to be the work of anarchists who um, you know, are anti-American and they are just out for making trouble any way they can. And they well, have... So, so they were saying that it wasn't the building breaking, it was someone 
like what, what someone someone up? thought about bomb yeah someone came up with the idea they're saying someone came up with the idea to to bomb it who would think That's about cool. bombing a big tower of terrorism <laughs> right yep. the the theory was their theory is that some anarchists had attached a bomb to the outside of the structure which unfortunately to them didn't match the explosion pattern. Um, it, it, it literally went out in all directions, um, the metal, you know, and whereas if it had, if the bomb had been um, initiated from the outside of the structure, it would have, the explosion would have, um, you know, resulted differently. Well, so, and also right. if they heard the pop, pop, pop of the rivets, that's, that's gotta yeah. be a clue to how it happened. Yep. Yeah. That would happen in an explosion or a bomb yeah. explosion. Well, their theory did not stand up for very long at all because, um, I mean, it was very quickly and easily just like, uh, no, you're, uh, you're <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, that could not have happened in any way, shape, or form. But it's just interesting that they dodged it. Uh, they were trying to dodge it because as things unfolded, there was an, an investigation um, was launched, and it revealed a whole lot of really bad stuff. So the Purity Distilling Company um, had not really bothered much at all about making sure this the structure was safe. From the very beginning, uh, the, the plans that were drawn up um, were crappy plans. They weren't thought out very well, and uh, I don't know. I don't know the reason, like whether it was a poor um, execution or whether it was uh, a company that was shady, I, I couldn't tell you, but the designs themselves were bad. We have in place, um, you know, a review where somebody above that person who creates the design has to sign off on it. Um, and that person who was employed at Purity Distilling, who was responsible for signing off on the structure, said, yeah, that looks great. In, in reality, they barely looked at the design at all. Um, this was a sort of like, oh, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure someone else has done their work and I'll just, you know, continue shuffling paper kind of situation. Um, it turned out that the materials used even were very poor quality. Um, normally uh, for a size, this, uh, a size of building, you would want a certain thickness in your steel. And the steel used in this case was drastically thinner than it should have been. So just kind of all in all, um, you can imagine that 1919 building standards were much lower than they are uh, today. So the threshold is very, very low to begin with at that time period. Mm -hmm. But the investigation revealed that this structure's stability fell far below even the standards of that day, you know? You know, that's so ridiculous because the company has an incentive to keep their building together. Like, mm -hmm. these people really dropped the ball. Because, you know, they lost millions of pounds of, or cubic tons or whatever you said of molasses. So, yep. it's I'm sure that the really war was part keep of... Their, keep their stuff in good shape. I'm sure the war was part of the excuse. I mean, you know, there, it's possible they didn't have access to the right kinds of material that they needed because you know, during the war, there was all kinds of, like, oh, yeah. shortages mm -hmm. and different things that were being... I mean, I'm not saying that that's... I, You know, I could just see that it's kind good, of happening. It's a good and, point, yeah. If it was built during the war years, it would have been... 
yeah. in the middle to them. It was only a couple of years old. I think the building, the structure, maybe Caitlin said that at the beginning, it had only been built a couple of years before. Yeah, 19 Yeah, that worked during the war. And that sounds like yeah, a so plausible excuse, but none of the none of the sources cite like even mentioned that. So it it really well, seems they're that just not as smart as Jama. <laughs> well, I think it. I think that the the whether or not that was true, the overwhelming negligence of the company must have just uh, completely um, dwarfed that other factor mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah. so um as a result of the, the investigation the things that were found um oh, okay i before i move on um jillian earlier you mentioned how much you like um sticking your finger in the molasses and how unsanitary that was <laughs> so yeah although i'm kind of off of it now <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's got dead horses in it as a yeah, that's a good point. As a example of just how bad this building had been built, even though it was so new, um, it was very common for school children to uh on their way by, you know, in the neighborhood, to run up to the building and then like take their finger and, and like scoop a bunch of molasses off the outside, the exterior. Because it was <laughs> oh my God. leaking Themes. Um, people who lived nearby the building would complain of it, kind of moaning or groaning. You know, with the change of the mm. the, the weather, they could, you could kind of hear. You know, when a when a house shifts, you can kind of hear a, a noise. Uh-huh. So it it was creaking. it was creaking. Um, and uh, one of the sources mentioned that the distilling uh, company got tired of washing the exterior so many times. Uh, off of the, the the leaking molasses, they eventually just painted it brown. <laughs> school children problem like, solved. Get afternoon snack. So solved that problem. <laughs> oh yes. So this all led to uh, a lawsuit. There were 119 lawsuits filed against the Purity Distilling and uh, U.S. Industrial. Uh, company that was a parent company of Purity Distilling. Um, I don't understand this, but it, this is how it was stated. Uh, three years of testimony was were, was taken. One thousand witnesses were interviewed, and fifteen hundred exhibits were um, recorded in 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 the course of the trial. And uh, the U.S. industrial company was found at fault, which is not that big of a surprise. They paid out over a million dollars in damages, and for um, per family uh, of someone who had passed away in this disaster, uh, the family would get about six thousand um, dollars. Which, Jama, if you want to do the math on what exactly that I might think, mean, I think it's like a hundred thousand dollars in today's money. Okay, I think so too. Um, so, Did they pay for the cleanup? What's that? Did they pay for the environmental like cleanup, or was it just for the people? Uh the million. That was just per victim. The million dollars in damages, I think, covers all parties that had been. I'm sure they had to pay a certain amount just to the city of Boston. Um, but 
my sources that I read, I, I, they didn't break it down further than that. There is, however, um, one of the sources I'll cite uh, that probably does cover the trial in extensive detail, and I, I can point people to, to that one in just a couple minutes. Um, this next piece, though, I thought Jillian would think was really interesting. Um, I know that when we did, for example, the uh, the Columbus, uh, sorry, the Colorado bus tragedy, that yes. the very first episode we did, um, mm -hmm. the outcome of that disaster is that uh, all buses were yellow after that point. Mm -hmm. So yeah. one of the things, one of the outcomes from this disaster is the city of Boston took, obviously, took this really, really seriously, and they actually changed their city laws and regulations with regards to, quote-unquote, receptacle uh, structures. So I'll kind of dive into that just a little bit. As you can imagine, if you need to build a new house, you need to get a building permit. Or, okay, I want to build a factory. I need a building permit. And, and the city categorizes um, the standard for the permitting um, based on what type of structure it is. So I'm sure houses would need to be very, very structurally sound, obviously, because people are going to be living there. Factories, similarly, you've got people working there. Um, but when it came to receptacle structures, so storage tanks, the bar was very low. Uh, it just didn't care as much. And then after this, they realized the contents within those receptacles is, in fact, very important. It could be gasoline, which yeah. is explosive, or it could be molasses, which is, we found out, explosive as well. Um, so these receptacle structures are actually much more important than they were um, initially uh, uh, realizing. So the, the law changed. So the um, permitting uh, process and the standard of uh, structural integrity had to be much higher. And because this disaster had been covered in the news all across the North American uh, continent, um, other cities were listening in. And a lot of them made changes in the same exact time frame. So, uh, and then another source I, I want to say cited that the government um, has had much more to say in the way of regulations and restrictions on big, on big business ever since this disaster. And I'm sure that a lot of people could dissect that statement and, and say, oh, no, it's this disaster, that thing, or it's all these, you know, it's a, it's a wide variety of things that led to the government you know, paying more attention to and wanting to have more restrictions on uh, restrictions on big business, but at least for one of the sources, they really felt like this was one of those big deciding moments uh, where you know the kind of the, the needle moved a little bit. So I thought that was really fascinating. Well, it's certainly, uh, it's a, an attention-getting disaster. Mm -hmm. It's so <laughs> unique. So yeah. Well, and it kind of rem reminds you, like anything could happen. Um, you've got to be prepared for it. You you need to have um, you know, codes and and restrictions and regulations in place to make sure that that the unthinkable is still uh, you know prepared prepared for. Yeah. So, um, if you were to go to the area today, you would see uh, that the site is a city-owned recreational complex. They've got a little plaque um, that that commemorates the uh, the day um, in in history. But otherwise, uh, it's, it's actually just a lot of kids playing Little League Baseball. So um, it's got some baseball fields and uh, playgrounds. Um, this, year, this year was the 100th anniversary of that event. Yes. And in fact, yeah. 
excellent segue, Jama, that um, for all of our readers who want to find out more about this, uh, there is a ton of information out there because at the, the 100 year anniversary of that event, just tons and tons of, of news organizations or um, you know, independent like, reporters, uh, you know, whether it's local to Boston or nationwide, they all kind of you know, lobbed onto this, um, this really fascinating story. So anything from, you know, if you go on YouTube, you're going to find a whole bunch of videos. Uh, you just search regular Google, um, you know, there's some, some I think, uh, local Boston news articles. There's an NPR link. Um, I think there was even a, a, one of the major news companies that had covered it as well. Um, but specifically, I want to give a, a couple shout outs to the uh, YouTube videos that um, I found to be most helpful, that I uh, took a lot of my notes from. So if you're on YouTube and you search for uh, molasses flood disasters of the century, the name of the video, it's about 21 minutes long. Oh, yeah. It's um, it's produced or it's uploaded at least to, to YouTube by a company called Bad Day HQ, uh, which is kind of hilarious because their whole thing is if you think you've had a, a bad day, we'll show you a video of somebody who's had a worse. <laughs> <laughs> um. Obviously, the, the Wikipedia page is uh, a go-to. I went there uh, after watching several different videos, listening to a couple of interviews. Um, that way, just made sure I had a cohesive story. Wikipedia always does a great job of, of having all the facts. And in fact, they do have a full list of all the 21 names, uh, 21 people who died, their names, their age, and their occupation, which, as, as morbid as it might be, uh, it is a little interesting. Um, you know, several children died um, and several uh, elderly people, you know, just like wide ranging, all, all different types of, of walks of life is kind of interesting. Um, another one was a, uh, it was a radio interview, um, Boston's NPR news station, 90.9 WBUR. Uh, I found it on a web link, www wbur.org. Um, you search for 100 years later, lessons from Boston's molasses flood of 1919. A professor had been interviewed, um, and because uh, because that actually was located in Boston, I really felt like he uh, that professor knew a lot of what he was talking about. He he had some some details I hadn't heard anywhere else. Okay, I have two do more. Do you have any? Um, do you have any like? Uh, You know, yeah. the restaurant waitress you talked to, or? Nope, nope. Because last time you did. A cab driver somewhere? <laughs> well, oh, that reminds me. Um, no. Okay, so I'll, I'll jump to the next source. I did not read this book, but it was highly recommended by one of the sources I did um, I did check out. So because I'm not a great I don't read very fast, so I wasn't I wasn't gonna bog myself down. But if you want to go deeper into the historical context and the trial coverage specifically, you should read the book called Dark Tide. It is written by Stephen Plow, which is spelled P-U-L-E-O. And uh, the reason why I want to point that out is because there were so many lawsuits in this case. So many hours of testimony, 
Um, that's that, I mean, obviously the, the news agencies were covering this and they interviewed plenty of people and, and there's a lot of great interviews um, based on news coverage. But this particular disaster has so many different people's stories because everybody's testimony was taken, where they were, what they were doing, why they were there, and then, you know, how the flood hit them and what happened after that. Uh, it just, you know, story after story after story. I mean, yeah, 150 people were injured, but that doesn't mean those are the only people in the vicinity. Like tons of people were a part of this day and, and all of their stories have been recorded through those uh, trials. So uh, I definitely want to recommend that book because I think it will go a lot further into uh, certain people's stories. So um, the last one, I want to give a little shout out. Um, honestly, I took no notes on this one, but it's a really cool video, and I want to, um, I want to, whatever you call it, um, pay it forward or whatever. This uh, this video is called "The Physics of the Boston Molasses Flood," and uh, it was posted by a student who was studying the science behind the the disaster, and. Uh, on, on YouTube, she says that her name is S-Y Fluid Dynamics. So you can, you can search that. I honestly think Jamie would love watching that video because it's really short and sweet, but it goes into more of the science behind why, why that molasses could have exploded the way it did, which I think is a that very... good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then last but not least... I have to end by telling you guys that through the process of my research, I found out that there was a Honolulu molasses spill. Did you guys know that? No, really? Uh, Honolulu I, has a molasses spill? It does. Uh, I have to mention it because obviously I live on Oahu now, um, and so I, it caught my eye. I, I don't think that I knew this, this had happened. It happened in September. 2013, when uh, 1,400 tons of molasses spilled into the Honolulu Harbor, uh, the spill the spill was caused by a faulty pipe, and uh, this shipping company uh, had got to keep up those molasses pipelines. Seriously, yeah, that's right, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, sugarcane on Maui. And uh, the, the sugarcane is then made into molasses, and then uh, it, it comes to Honolulu, so then it can be exported uh, either to the mainland or in, to other places. It's kind of like the, the last little spot before it gets um, sent across the ocean. And so kind of similar where this is a normal holding spot for a lot of molasses, and a pipe had failed. And so it uh, spilled all this stuff into the um, nearby harbor. And uh, it, I found that interesting because uh, the natural currents and weather were expected to eventually dilute and flush the, the molasses out of the harbor. But divers went in to kind of evaluate how bad this was for the, the natural, uh, the, the sea life. And it was, it, the molasses, because of its weight, had instantly sank to the very bottom and it just coated everything. There's a very widespread deoxygenation, uh, killing all kinds of fish and, and um, coral species. And, coral and, everything. and yeah. yeah. They, they had to, they got major, major trouble for that. 
Um, and I just find that interesting. You know, this happened uh, in Boston in 1919. Um, you know, the, the attention given to the environment, to the local sea life, uh, it, it really honestly wasn't a part of this story. Uh, people, oh, didn't, mm-hmm. people didn't report on it. People didn't really, um, I'm sure they thought it was sad, but they were just kind of waiting for the ocean to flush itself out and like, you know, get get rid of it. But it's interesting just to think about that dynamic of this story that um, I'm sure the, the sea life in the harbor was uh, greatly affected as well, even though we don't know much about it uh, anymore. So that is my story. Well, in, in the same way that they that they started regulating those molasses tanks in Boston, they now, um, Hawaii's Department of Transportation, um, they now require that all pipelines no matter what they're pumping through the pipes, all of them have to supply um, cleanup plans and they have to inspect their pipelines all the time. There's really nothing, it's impossible to clean up if it happens, so they really just have to focus on prevention and early detection. So they have to um, track it all the time now. So you can't trust these businesses to do their own jobs. So. Yeah. So, so what do you guys think? I know that um, it was it, maybe one of the longer ones. I need to work on that. Jillian does a good job of keeping her stories concise. <laughs> so, what do you guys think of that story? That's really crazy. That is just really crazy. Yeah. It's one of the craziest disasters I've ever heard of. Molasses. I wonder what other weird things have spilled over the years. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. It'll make me so sad. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, well, I'm seeing I'm seeing there's a link here on uh, Wikipedia. We won't get into it, but there is a uh, link to the London beer flood and oh, the Pepsi God. juice uh, Pepsi fruit juice flood. So oh, okay. we have okay. we have those those will make uh, good upcoming episodes somewhere down yeah. the road now. For sure. <laughs> oh, I man. gotta know more about that. All right, Jamin, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find us if they want to um, suggest uh, a topic for our next episode? Absolutely. Uh, If uh, any of our listeners are interested in some more information uh, or want to suggest a topic, they can find us on Facebook at Calamity Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Podcast Calamity. You can email us at calamitypodcast at gmail.com. Our website is <laughs> I'm not well practiced at this. Uh, calamitypodcast.com, and uh, we also have a Patreon uh, account, and you can find us there uh, at Calamity Podcast. So Probably those are all the. Yeah, absolutely. One, one correction to that, James. If you have any personal stories about molasses or floods, molasses type floods. <laughs> We'd love to and now I want to go well. make some cookies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you have a correction, right. Caitlin? I I do. I realize after the fact that our um, email address it's actually a Yahoo oh. instead of a Gmail. So if you want to make the correction on your end, oh, email, thank I you. I will. I will resave that. Perfect. But if otherwise, I, you can tell I don't. I don't actually check that uh, account. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Columbia Podcast at yahoo.com. 
you've got on Gmail. that you can delegate for that type of thing. Don't worry. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for another great episode, and we hope that you all stay safe out there. Be safe. Thank you.